You're in your doctor's office, or your dentist, or maybe it's the gym with a personal trainer. You see a poster on the wall, and it catches your eye immediately. Maybe it was a textbook or video online where you saw it, but it changed you. You see the human body, or small focused highlights of it, and it's more complex than ever, while at the same time, orderly. It's still and solid, as opposed to the soft, mushy flesh you feel under your fingers as you trace those same locations on yourself. The organized chaos is entrancing you, while the clean execution and carefully color-coded arrangement guides your eye through the pathways and channels connecting form and structure. You're seeing the inner workings of biological architecture. You're seeing details you knew had to be there, but you never really understood or could name. You're looking at a medical illustration. Medical illustration helps to share important ideas from experts to the rest of the world. From detailed human anatomy drawings to 3D animations of subcellular biochemistry, this art form helps to explain and make clear what are some of the most complex and confusing topics in modern science. When it comes to health and the human body, topics important to everyone, I want you to know there is an entire field of experts who have devoted their lives and careers to helping all of us understand better health, disease, injury, treatment options, function and dysfunction, so that we can make educated decisions for ourselves and loved ones. We want to educate you and arm you with a better understanding of life science. Welcome to the first episode of the Medical Illustration Podcast. I will be your host, Paul Kelly. I'm a professional medical illustrator working out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I graduated from one of just a few graduate programs for medical illustration, biomedical communications, and scientific visualization. And I've been fortunate enough to work alongside some of the most incredibly talented master artists in the world. I've been lucky enough to work professionally in both the textbook illustration market and in a major North American hospital. And throughout my short career, I've also had the opportunity to take on some exciting freelance projects with some amazing experts. This podcast is a personal project I've been wanting to do for a while now, and something I hope will be beneficial to many people for many reasons. In this first episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about the field itself and its history, and where it is today. The guest interview format is actually where I'd like this podcast to ultimately go, so if you're interested in chatting with me, please reach out and get in touch. So I want to start by introducing myself a little bit. I work with a small team making surgical education videos, and I couldn't imagine a more awesome job. I get to take part in surgical videography and 3D animation, and I'm constantly learning about the human body and minute esoteric details of human anatomy, and advances in several subspecialties of surgery, including organ transplantation, which I find particularly fascinating. My primary goal for this podcast is to promote the field of medical illustration. I want more people to know about us and what we do, because we're seeing a rapid increase in the number of people who are getting to know about this kind of work and want to get involved. Interest in communicating science visually is rapidly expanding. The field of medical illustration exists to better communicate, educate, explain, visualize, and engage. I want more people to know about this, about what we do, who we are, and see how the work we do is constantly evolving and improving. I want more people to know about the all-stars in this field. They're great artists, fantastic human beings, and I want to help get their stories told. When many people hear the term medical illustration, they have no idea what it is. Drawing human anatomy is where it all starts. 
many of us still do mostly this. It may come as a surprise to people to learn that the same subject matter needs to be drawn over and over again, but it's actually true, for several reasons. The first is that new research is being done all the time. As our microscopes and scanners and other diagnostic tools increase in quality, new discoveries are made and need to be communicated. New surgical procedures and medications are being developed all the time, and this calls for a better understanding of human anatomy and physiology. And especially with surgeries, you need new angles and points of view and new arrangements and intentional omissions of certain structures in order to properly highlight and emphasize certain other structures. The alternative angles and points of view is actually a big deal. If you look at a lot of medical illustrations out there in textbooks, this is often what they do as they update their editions. They add new angles and new perspectives on the same anatomical region because people asked for it. There's a lot of certain anatomical structures that just are not described well in straight-on views. Perfect example, the liver and the uterus. If you have a straight-on view, it doesn't really capture what that organ really looks like. You kind of need like a three-quartered angled view to really appreciate the 3D shape of those organs. My own work in depicting surgical anatomy for procedures that involve the liver is a great example of how well-known structures are often missing from existing images. If you Google bile ducts, you're going to see that a lot of the images out there show the common bile duct and the main right and left hepatic ducts. But most of them don't show the individual branches that come from each of the individual liver segments. Even if you search for segmental bile ducts, you'll still be hard-pressed to find images that show these structures very well, especially their 3D relationships to closely associated structures such as the portal veins and hepatic arteries. Now also, New discoveries are taking place all the time in the fields of biochemistry and molecular biology, and these discoveries about esoteric biological molecules still need to be communicated to the larger scientific communities so that new questions can be asked and new theories developed and tested. The medical legal market is an area that calls for new medical visualizations to be produced regularly because every case is different and presents unique situations. Now, there are common themes and so stock images and animations can be useful, but anytime a client can afford customized work, the result will be more valuable because it will communicate this specific situation and will be less liable to suffer from criticism in court that it lacks specificity. Another consideration for why anatomy needs to get redrawn is that styles and taste change over time. Many of the older medical illustrations done in centuries past, for example, look outdated even though they're highly accurate. Some of these images found on sites like Wikipedia are products of their time. They're black and white because they were drawn before color could be reproduced in an economically efficient way. They are also a product of the printing presses that made them. These images were etched or engraved, and that's why the tone is represented through hatched line work, as opposed to smooth gradations of gray like pencil or charcoal drawings. As reproductive methods continue to evolve, there's always going to be a demand to show the human body and its intricacies using the newest and most advanced tools. So now that you know what medical illustration is, how does one go about doing it? To become a professional medical illustrator in North America, the most direct route is to complete a master's degree in one of the graduate programs. There's currently four master's programs in the United States and Canada, each with its own rich history, celebrated graduates, and niche specializations. They are, in the order in which they were founded, the Art of Applied to Medicine program at Johns Hopkins Medical School, endowed in 1911 and founded by Max Bradel, who upon his arrival in 1894, 
was swiftly hired by Dr. Howard A. Kelly, chief of gynecology at Hopkins at the time. The biomedical visualization program at the University of Illinois at Chicago, founded in 1914 by Tom Jones. The biomedical communications program at the University of Toronto, founded in 1925 by Maria Wishart and the Medical Illustration Program at the University of Georgia, now Augusta University, in 1948 by Dr. G. Lombard Kelly and Medical Illustrator Mr. Jack Wilson. Now, I won't try to describe the differences in aesthetic styles that each of these programs have developed over the years at this time. Some people have said that, oh, this program does more animation, this one is more traditional. I don't think those descriptions really work because all the programs these days still do traditional media and they all do digital media. So for now, I'll just leave that to you to go check out the programs individually, look at the galleries they have on their websites, and you can judge for yourself the differences in the styles they have. I've put links to each of the programs in the episode's description, so you can go check them out yourself. Now I do want to point out some of the underlying factors that all these programs share. Each of the graduate programs share a common set of requirements that are governed and reviewed on an ongoing basis by a board of accreditation. One of the key features of each graduate program is that they require a medical anatomy course, which includes dissection of human cadavers. Their programs carry on a tradition of study that is closely tied with the medical profession and continues the legacy of some of the most well-known and accomplished medical minds from antiquium. The advances of medicine and life science are closely tied to medical and scientific image making. Indeed, our profession is the discipline of documenting, spreading, and advancing scientific and medical knowledge. The history of medical illustration itself goes back to the history of medicine, and the history of image making, really. As I've begun to dig into the history of medical illustration, I've found that it's a massively broad subject, and really, I could make an entire podcast series on the history of medical illustration alone. So here, I'm only going to be able to cover just a few of the major points, and I think the history would be better conveyed through experts more knowledgeable than myself. So if you are one of those experts, or you can think of someone I should reach out to, please let me know and provide contact info for some folks I can bring in as a guest, and we can all get schooled together. When we look into ancient history and the earliest depictions of the inside of the human body, we see that there is a lot of confusion and misunderstanding into the relationships between structure and function. For example, the ancient Egyptians, during mummification rituals, would prize the internal organs of the thorax and abdomen but picked out the brain with a hook through the nasal cavity and discarded it, considering it unimportant. Ancient diagrams that tried to map out internal anatomy were crude, and many had a schematic quality to them. They lacked detail and certainly didn't depict the shapes and 3D relationships accurately. This changed as Europe entered its Renaissance period, and artists began to apply scientific understanding to the image-making process. The Renaissance began in the 14th century in Florence, Italy, and marked an era of dramatic social change. One of the key figures in this era was an individual many consider to be one of the most important early figures in medical illustration, a polymath we all know, Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci is the quintessential example of quality over quantity. If you only take one lesson from this genius to heart, have it be that one. Da Vinci has left us only a handful of anatomical drawings but those he did are astonishing in their detail, execution, and beauty. Da Vinci's clever use of cutaways and cross-sections and rotated forms communicated an undeniable thorough understanding of his subjects. Shortly after Da Vinci was another important figure in the early development of medical illustration, someone who often actually gets more press in the medical illustration community, 
an anatomist and physician by the name of Andreas Vesalius. Vesalius was important because he authored one of the most influential books on human anatomy, De Humani Corporis Fabrica. Illustrations were actually done by an artist by the name of Jan Stefan van Kalkar, but this arrangement of physician art director and artist apprentice was, and still is, a common working relationship for medical art production. I myself work in a situation very much like this. Especially when it comes to surgery, you almost have to have a master clinician with niche understanding of human anatomy and a dedicated retainer to manifest this understanding at a production rate that demands more time than the physician themselves could possibly afford. The Fabrica was groundbreaking at the time because of how it depicted the human body. The illustrations looked like, and were, dissected human bodies. They clearly showed accurate depictions of internal anatomy, not symbolic or schematic, and beautifully rendered the forms to communicate the three-dimensional relationships in progressive layers of depth. When you integrate the artistic milestones of the Renaissance, realistic representation using perspective, and structural study into medical visual aids, you begin to see individual muscles delineated and bones and blood vessels depicted with shadows, highlights, and surface texture. This illustrative realism has been a hallmark of medical illustration ever since and continues to be a sought-after skill set for many different applications. I'm going to have to skip quite a lot of important history here and jump straight to a person in the early 20th century, and that is a fellow by the name of Max Bradel. Max Bradel moved to the United States from Germany in 1894, when he was just 24 years old. Having studied fine art in Leipzig, Germany, and producing work for Dr. Carl Ludwig, he was brought to the John Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore by Dr. Franklin P. Mall where he made illustrations for Dr. Harvey Cushing, William Halstead, and the aforementioned Howard Kelly. Max had established a reputation for highly detailed, realistic depictions of human anatomy, which were developed from observational studies of autopsies and surgery under Dr. Ludwig. He did so using a technique known as carbon dust, where carbon shavings are applied using a bristle brush to produce smooth gradations of tone. The meticulous detail and realistic depictions of human tissue really must be seen to be fully appreciated, and I encourage you to look up his work and admire it for yourself. Max Bradel would go on to teach a legendary cadre of the first professionally trained medical illustrators in North America, some of whom would go on to found other programs, and many of whom became famous in their own right for their phenomenal work. The last person I'll mention in this brief and incomplete introduction to medical illustration history is a name you probably know. In fact, He's probably the most famous medical illustrator of all time, even more famous than Max Bradel, and probably the most copyright-infringed artist of all time, Dr. Frank Netter. Frank Netter was actually a doctor, but he loved to paint and make images, and during the 1930s all the way through the 80s, he was churning out work at an impressive rate, much of which was published through the pharmaceutical company Chiba, C-I-B-A. Dr. Netter was born and raised in New York City, and he studied art quite a bit when he was younger. In fact, it appears that was his first and foremost passion. It was only through pressure from his family that he put aside his artistic studies and went into medicine, a story I'm sure many medical illustrators can empathize with. A famous story of Netter's was how at one point he actually overcharged a client by mistake, and they paid him the full amount without question. He realized he should have been charging more all along. This is a story many young medical illustrators should empathize with. Netter produced thousands of illustrations for Chiba that were used in small brochures, usually focused on a medical condition, and were essentially used to sell pharmaceutical drugs. 
There are many other famous medical illustrators that have contributed to the development of the field, including several who are alive and working today. I'm going to do my best to reach out to these folks and get them on the podcast so they can tell their own stories. I will be referring to the Association of Medical Illustrators, or AMI, many times throughout this podcast. I'm a professional member of the AMI, and I try to stay actively involved in the community. I must mention, though, that I do not represent the organization, and the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the association. The AMI plays an important role in the world of medical illustration. They are especially active here in North America, but there are members from all over the world. The mission of the AMI is to promote the field of medical illustration and the work of medical illustrators. And they do this in several ways. By active collaboration with the graduate programs I just mentioned, most of the professors in those programs are actively involved in the executive duties of the association. And also through the annual AMI meeting, where presentations are given by leaders in the field, and the highest level of artwork is put on display in the AMI Salon Gallery. Awards are given out to entries in the salon in both student and professional categories to those demonstrating the highest degrees of excellence and proficiency in the craft. The AMI was established in 1946, and the first annual meeting was held in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the United States from September 23rd to the 26th of that year. About 40 members attended this event, where the association's constitution and bylaws were unanimously voted in. The first president of the AMI was a gentleman I had mentioned, Mr. Tom Jones, who founded the Chicago Graduate Program at UIC. President Jones addressed those in attendance at the first meeting with observations of the current state of medical illustration at that time, as well as his predictions for the future, many of which have since come true. Specifically, he mentioned at the time the growing demand of 3D models, and although he meant literal physical models, of course we now see an immense proliferation of 3D anatomical models in the digital markets, both animation and interactive, which today have become ubiquitous with our profession. That's actually what I've done a lot of in my career, is build 3D anatomical models for teaching surgery. And that is proof right there that from day one, the AMI has been looking to the future of the profession and encouraging its members to prepare for it. I find that this is certainly still the case, and I enjoy being part of the community. If you want to learn more about medical illustration and be showered with medical image eye candy, check out AMI.org and explore the site. So that's episode one of the Medical Illustration Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my rants. If uh, you did or you didn't, uh, just feel free to let me know in the comments and tune in to the next episode. Talk to you then.